Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Perhaps no other book in the Bible sparks as much controversy and confusion as the last one, the book of Revelation. As the perceived conclusion to the story of Scripture, some unhealthily obsess over this book, treating it like some sort of puzzle, a puzzle wherein all the pieces fit together into a chart or a timeline for the end of the world, while others either become so overwhelmed or freaked out by what they read in these pages that they pretend it all doesn't matter. And then they do their best from that point on to avoid opening up the book of Revelation altogether. Both of these perspectives are flawed. Both of these approaches miss the point of what is one of the most important books of the Bible. As Christians, most of us read the four Gospels. We read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We read the four Gospels in order to hear and to remember the recorded words and deeds of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But the fact is, the fact is the last words of Jesus, the ongoing action of Christ, are found not in the four Gospels, but in the book of Revelation. The Revelation not of John, as it's so often referred to, but the revelation as it is declared of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the author and source of all that is disclosed here. John serves as the secretary, you know, faithfully putting down pen to paper in order to put down all that Christ reveals to him. And despite how strange and seemingly unfamiliar the content of this book can often appear at first glance, as we'll soon discover, what Jesus reveals to us through John is, in fact, nothing new. What's unveiled here is just being presented in a new way. So rightly perceived, the book of Revelation is the encore of the Gospels. If you've ever been to a concert of any kind, an encore is an additional or repeat performance by the artist after the planned show has ended, usually in response to extended applause or demand from the audience. Now today, we're going to explore why this encore was originally needed and why this encore remains so vital for every generation of the church. But for now, let's set the stage to receive a sampling of this encore, this encore that is the book of Revelation. If we've only ever heard the gospel before, let us prepare to see the good news on display through the opening of this grand illustrative vision first revealed by Jesus Christ to John and now shared with us from Revelation chapter one. Here we go. Today's reading comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. Please read with me. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, 
and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands in this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last week, we kicked off this fall sermon series focused on the first part of the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. And we described how we're going to review in these next coming weeks what are known as Jesus' letters to the seven churches. And as I mentioned previously, while these seven churches were actual physical, geographically situated congregations from the first century AD, Christ's words to them were intended to be applicable to the church in every generation. However, as we started last week, as I said, before we dive into the particulars of these letters, before we can get there, we're going to spend the first two weeks, last week and this one, the first two weeks of this series acclimating to the book of Revelation as a whole. Now, last week, we reflected on the unique perspective Revelation offers us, a perspective that radically changes how we approach and understand this book. Today, we're going to dive deeper into the specific content of this book. We're going to dive into the gospel according to Revelation as laid out in the first chapter. And so we begin. We begin by acknowledging both the person and the circumstances through which we have this last book of the Bible. The one who writes down these words is a man named John. And tradition holds that this is the same John who was one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. The same John who is an author of one of the four gospel accounts, the one bearing his name. The same John who was a son of thunder, a son of Zebedee, who emerged as a leader in the early church, especially among the churches in Asia Minor, or what we know today as the nation of Turkey. For John, at this time, many years had passed. Many years had passed since the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church, when the way of Jesus first caught fire. Since that time, the Roman Empire, which initially had been indifferent to Christians, has turned hostile towards followers of Jesus, banning them, persecuting them, even eliminating the practice of the Christian faith within its realm. John has become a casualty. John's become a casualty of this campaign against Christianity as he has ended up with a one-way ticket not to paradise, but to a place called Patmos. Patmos, an island in the Mediterranean, was no resort location. It was not anywhere you'd want to go for a vacation. Some hundred miles off the coast of Asia Minor, Patmos was made up of mostly rock and rough terrain and it was about 13 square miles in length. Patmos was, for all intents and purposes, the Alcatraz of the Roman Empire, part of its prison system. And as we're told in this first chapter, John has been banished here. John is on Patmos because of his unwavering commitment to his sharing of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Separated from his family and friends, John has become powerless powerless to do anything for all those he had led to Christ. Living in exile, John can only helplessly watch from afar as those he loves continue to suffer, to be relentlessly and devastatingly persecuted for their faith. 
as many, many are being led to their deaths. John is left confused and uncertain, and he's not alone. Fear and doubt are starting to creep into the whole body of Christ at this time because it looks like the fire of the faith born at Pentecost is dying, that the church is going to be snuffed out, that the muscle and might of Rome, rather than the grace and love of Jesus, will rule the order of the day. It is in this moment in time when John and others like him could no longer perceive any hope in their present or their future. It is at this moment in time an encore presentation of the gospel begins to be presented. The curtain was raised, as John records it, on the Lord's Day, Sunday, as John was in the Spirit, in other words, worshiping. And John heard a loud voice behind him, calling him to begin writing down what he was about to see. And what follows in the rest of this chapter and throughout the book of Revelation is a singular epic vision marked by all kinds of majestic and mysterious sights and sounds presented in a non-linear and often symbolic manner. Now, as we discussed last week, the point of view John is being offered here is an eternal perspective, one therefore outside of time. John is witnessing a vision not simply of the future, what is coming later, but rather of how the future already was breaking into the present. What John is seeing and sharing is the answer to the repeated petition from the Lord's Prayer. That petition, let it be on earth as it is in heaven. John is witnessing the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into this world even now. Now John, in receiving this vision to enable him to capture and convey all that he sees, the things of heaven, again, an eternal perspective rather than a linear one, John, in order to do this, is provided with familiar images iconic symbols drawn from the story of Israel and the early church. One of the reasons the book of Revelation is so confusing and confounding to many is because of a lack of familiarity, a lack of fluency in terms of the rest of the biblical story. If we view the acts of God as a trilogy, let's say, the Old Testament, the Gospels, and then the encore, that is, Revelation. If we view the Bible as a trilogy, one can't just drop in for the final chapter and rightly expect to recognize and understand what is happening. But to be clear, getting behind all the images, the signs and symbols in Revelation, getting behind them, it's not about cracking a secret code. It's about being able to better absorb and appreciate the richness and depth of the divine painting that John illustrates for us. You know, for me, a helpful way to approach Revelation is to embrace it as an elaborate picture book. More specifically, I like to think of it being like one of those books, do you remember, filled with magic eye 3D images? You know those where you, you stared at a seemingly chaotic image as a whole, and then you finally look dead center, and as you slowly pull back, you see the picture revealed within. Well, while we can get intimidated or fixated by the various and seemingly chaotic images in the book of Revelation as a whole, the key is to pull back and to pay attention to the picture revealed at the center. And the beautiful thing about Revelation, the beautiful thing about this book, is we don't have to wait long for our eyes to adjust, for our eyes to be directed to the center, the masterpiece at the heart of this vision. From start to finish in the book of Revelation, in the midst of all the other possibly confusing and distracting sights, our attention is focused on exactly 
what we're supposed to see, or more appropriately, who we are to keep our eyes on. When John turns around to look for the source of that voice behind him, he sees someone who he knew. He sees someone who he knew, someone who he was familiar with, and yet at the same time, someone who looks very different now. John describes this person as being like one who was a son of man. This turn of phrase in one sense just refers to being human, but it later becomes adopted by the Old Testament prophet Daniel to also describe divinity, specifically a heavenly figure who identifies with and rules over all creation. John goes on in detail about how this figure is dressed in a robe with a golden sash, walking among golden lampstands. And this imagery, again, is right out of Exodus and Leviticus. It's alluding to priestly garments as well as the tabernacle or temple of the Lord. As John continues to sketch what he sees, this not-so-mysterious stranger, he describes him as having woolly, curly, kinky hair. And the key is that his hair is white as snow, imagery associated with atonement, with forgiveness of sins. But regal imagery is also invoked by John as well. He characterizes this person as having eyes like fire and a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And initially, this might freak us out, but taken together, this is not so much a disturbing image if we understand the association John is making here, that this is how the Word of God is often described, as a double-edged sword reflecting this all-encompassing authoritative wisdom that pierces and divides truth from lies, that penetrates and discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart and mind. Who is John seeing? Who is and remains at the center of the picture of Revelation? It's Jesus Christ. But it's Jesus Christ in a way that John and we have never seen him before. We can summarize the vision John receives in this way. Through much of the four Gospels, Jesus' identity as the Messiah, do you remember? Jesus' identity as the Lord of all creation, as the Savior of the world, Jesus' identity remains a secret in the Gospels. But here, at the Encore, Jesus' identity no longer remains a secret. The first time John met Jesus, Jesus was the Word of God made flesh. This time around, Jesus is still the Word of God made flesh, but now Jesus appears as the Word of God fulfilled the Word made flesh in all of his power and glory. What God, what Jesus as God veiled in flesh accompanied in his life, death, burial, and resurrection is now here put on display before John, before us all. And should there be any doubt that this is in fact Jesus, since after all, the one whom John sees never uses that name, when John nearly drops dead before his appearance, the one who is speaking reassures John with these words, I am the living one. I was dead, but now look, I am alive forever and ever. It is the risen Christ whom John sees. But the mere shades of the fullness of who Jesus is that John and we only began to glimpse at the end of the Gospels after his resurrection, what, what were once the black and white outlines of the good news are now disclosed to John and to us in stunning and glorious technicolor. This is again why we cannot ignore the book of Revelation, because no other book of the Bible presents Jesus so clearly, so fully, so compellingly for who he is. For again, this is not the book of revelations, plural, but the book of revelation. 
the singular unveiling of Jesus as our one and only prophet, priest, and king. This is the disclosure of the full reign of Christ, the refutation of any notion there is a game of thrones. For here we see, in fact, there is only one throne, and it is God alone who sits on it. Jesus is Lord. The gospel according to Revelation is nothing new. The one named Jesus who was mockingly crucified both in the name of religion and under the decree of the greatest empire in the world at that time. The one named Jesus who embraced and endured all that the forces of human sin and evil could throw at him. Rejection, ridicule, abuse, abandonment, agony, even death itself turned out to be the Son of Man who is the Son of God. The Jesus who turned defeat into victory death into life, a tomb into a birthplace, a threatening symbol of violence and fear into an invitation for forgiveness and an emblem of unconditional love. This good news, as we come to Revelation, remains unchanged. The gospel, according to Revelation, is nothing new. The encore, the last word of God recorded in the Bible, is the same word. It's just expressed as it never has been before, as the work of the cross and the victory of the resurrection are presented as more than just a moment in time, but the resetting of all time, as they're presented not as something we fondly remember from the past, but as the seed of eternity taking root and continuing to break through in the present and ultimately transforming our future. The gospel according to Revelation is both the unveiling and the affirmation that the hope we have in Christ is eternal. Now, there are lots of things that it can be hard for us to perceive, to truly see, right? And for some of us, if we're honest, hope can be one of those things. I would argue that for many people, many people, that's the real challenge of engaging the book of Revelation. It's not trying to make heads or tails of the appearance of angels or a dragon or four horsemen or lakes of fire. It's the struggle to perceive any hope through John's vision. Much like those magic art 3D pictures that I mentioned earlier, remember those? Some of us look, you know, we look for a long time, but we can't visualize the image that's supposedly there. All we can make out is one big, chaotic, disorienting mess, hope. We're just not seeing it. We look all around and all we perceive is the darkness surrounding us. That's all we see is darkness. All that's in our field of vision is the ongoing pandemic that we must keep managing with yet another major setback that we just have to work through, doing the best we can. All that's in our line of sight is that nagging grief that continues to overwhelm us, you know, that wound, that hurt, that just won't heal. All that's right before our eyes is the stress, the confusion, the uncertainty about a decision that we need to make. Or perhaps it's that lingering, haunting awareness, you know, that we just don't have the strength. We just don't have the courage, the will, to make that needed change in our lives, to get out of that situation, to stop coming back to that place, to let go of that attitude, that habit, that addiction that keeps tripping us up. Beloved, 
The gospel according to Revelation is the hope we are looking for, hope that is eternal, hope that is found in Jesus Christ. If we were to summarize all the troubles in this life, in this world, be they out there or in here, all those troubles would be summarized by the fear, the finality of death, the end, right? The cessation of loss of, of our physical and material lives or, or the reality of death by a thousand cuts, all the other manifestations of death, the ways in which we experience the trauma of loss emotionally, mentally, socially, spiritually, even as we continue to live and breathe, it's death. And yet right from the start, Jesus reminds John, he reminds us, do not be afraid. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Beloved, our hope is eternal because Jesus wins. Not Jesus might win, not Jesus eventually will win, but Jesus has won. Jesus has overcome the summation of all the troubles of this life, this world. What Jesus promises us, what Jesus has already secured for us is resurrection. Life beyond physical death and therefore life that is full and abundant, but also new life beyond death that begins even now. The ability to rise up from whatever losses, whatever failures we endure, and to experience the birth of second chances, the birth of new possibilities. Our eternal hope in Christ matters so much. We are given such an expansive vision of it in the book of Revelation because our lives and our world remain a work in progress. Contrary to how we often sell it, the gospel is not a snap of one's fingers sort of salvation. The gospel is not that. The remaking of the human condition, the redemption of all creation is not a quick fix. It's a gradual process. New birth takes time. In this life, we will have trouble. Jesus was painfully upfront, painfully upfront about that, about the birth pangs of a new heaven and a new earth. When we become a Christian, we don't become someone who's already arrived. We're done. We become a follower of Jesus. We're following. We're going somewhere. We're in the midst of a redeemed but still being, a broken but still being redeemed world that's filled with works in progress like us. The trouble and sufferings and pains of this life are the reflection of a creation still divided in the midst of being redeemed but not yet made whole. While Jesus has overcome, while Jesus has overcome, has defeated the forces of sin, evil, and death, those same forces refuse to go quietly. Exhausting their last breath, evil, sin, and death purpose to obstruct, to trap, and take as many as can be had from the kingdom of God through lies and accusations, the seductions of greed, lust, and hatred, and the spread of both violence and apathy. In this vision given to John, Jesus provides us with a powerful and sobering glimpse of these spiritual forces at work during these times in which we live so that we will not be ignorant about what is happening, but also so that we will have another perspective, the view from heaven in terms of what is really going on, and therefore so we will not lose hope. Beloved, the gospel according to the book of Revelation is about the eternal hope we are given in Christ alone. We need this hope, but receiving it, living out of it, 
is a choice. We can choose. We can choose to perceive these struggles, these troubles, even failure, as hopelessly defining our lives and sealing our fates. We can choose to remain fixated on our discomfort, our pain, and our fear, and leading it, letting doubt, anxiety, and bitterness just overtake us. Or, in all the tension and unrest globally, locally, and personally, when all we feel is lonely and sad or just frustrated and mad, we can turn around like John and pay attention to the voice calling to us. We can direct our attention away from the negative, from the cynical, from indifference, and fix our eyes on Christ on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the reason for our eternal hope. But we must choose. Hope is a choice. If we choose to hope, if we choose to see and receive the eternal hope we have in Christ, we will gain a balanced and realistic framework for understanding all of history. A balanced and realistic framework as well for viewing our lives our delights and our sorrows, our victories and our losses. If we choose to hope, to keep walking the way of Jesus, following him, trusting his continual presence with us through his word and spirit, that Jesus will lead and carry us, then we can become, we will become more than conquerors in Christ before temptation, before persecution and suffering, before even death itself. We will not strike back against evil by ourselves if we're following Jesus, but we will trust in the authority and power of Jesus as our king to finish what he has started in and through us. We will not pick up a gun or storm a building in the name of freedom, but rather out of the freedom of God's forgiveness, we will lay down our arms. We will lay down our lives to sacrifice and serve others, those most in need, in the name of Jesus as a witness to the hope we have in Christ. We cannot afford to miss the picture of our eternal hope firmly centered on Christ that Revelation shows us because this hope is not only what we need to carry on, it is also the only real and living hope we have to share. You see, rather than escape or withdraw from this world, which often is how this book is interpreted, no, in following Jesus, we are called to engage the brokenness within and without, to be priests, to be ambassadors of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. We are called to reflect, to tangibly embody this eternal hope we have in Christ, emboldened by the confidence of our faith, believing nothing can harm us in a permanent way. Our line of sight turns from looking inward to looking outward to seeing and acknowledging and intervening on behalf of others, those who do not know, those who have not heard. The encore of the gospel that is the picture of Revelation casts the Great Commission, our Great Commission, in a new light. More than simply adding to our numbers, more than increasing the size of our churches, Revelation helps us to see the Great Commission as our marching orders to bring the light, the hope of Christ, into the darkness. It helps us to see that the call for us to make disciples is the call for us to bring salvation to the world. And through the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, through the testimony of the word of God, we have been armed. We have been armed and made ready to protect and to serve, 
to conquer hate with love, violence with peace, vengeance with mercy, and death with life. Oh, my friends, hope is a powerful word. With hope comes encouragement. With hope comes the desire to persevere. A life, on the other hand, without hope is a life of defeat, of doubt, of dread. Which life would you rather choose? Because 2,000 years later, many of us perceive and feel as those, in John's, as those in John's day did, that by all appearances, the surrounding world appears unchanged, not, not all that different, the same as it ever was. Some might even argue worse. In the midst of a continuing global pandemic, in the face of widening polarization among our family, friends, and neighbors, in the throes of the escalating frustration, anger, and fear, what do we choose to see? A world hell-bent on its own destruction and going down in flames? Or will we look? Will we dare to see, to point like John, not just with our cheap words, but through the witness of our actions? Will we see, will we point to a savior? to the Lord, to Jesus at the center of all creation, declaring, do not be afraid. He is the first and the last. He is the living one. He was dead and now look, he is alive forever and ever. And Jesus holds the keys of death and Hades in his hand. My friends, having been given the vision, this vision of this glorious future breaking into our present, knowing Jesus is coming back now, that Christ is victorious today, that nothing can be taken away from us, that the Lord cannot redeem, reconcile, restore, or resurrect. We cannot, we cannot sit back and wait for tomorrow to come. We can't wait to go to heaven when we die or just kill time until Jesus returns. We need to stop burying our heads in the sands of time and instead lift them up with John into the perspective of eternity. Instead of looking for or running from the four horsemen of the apocalypse, instead of fixating upon or dreading the mark of the beast, instead of convincing ourselves that the world is going to hell before it gets to heaven, we need to put our focus, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. That's the message. That's the hope. That's the gospel according to Revelation. So let, let us do that. Let us open our eyes and let us see where the creator of the universe, where the risen and living Christ is reigning. Where Christ is reigning on our streets, in our neighborhoods, in the particular corner of the world where the Lord has called us. Let us refuse to be blinded anymore. To be blinded anymore by all the anger, the suspicion, and the cynicism that circulates around us. And instead, let us choose to see what John sees. What God shows us will be. What is coming even now. A world without unemployment or soup kitchens or welfare lines. A world without pandemics, disease, hunger, or loneliness. A world without the divisions of class, denomination, politics, gender, culture or the color of one's skin, a world without hospitals or cemeteries, without widows or orphans, a world without terrorism and genocide, without refugees and enslaved persons, a world where the only tears are the tears of joy and the only cries are the cries of laughter, a world where peace isn't a compromise, where peace isn't a bargain for some at the expense of others. 
but a world where peace is experienced by everyone in all its fullness. Peace with God. Peace within ourselves. Peace between each other. Peace with creation itself. The fullness and completeness of eternal peace. What the Bible calls shalom. If this is the world we choose to see, not the world as we try to make it, but the world that Christ holds in his hands and is remaking. If this is the kingdom before which we bow and worship, the kingdom of God, the kingdom not of might makes right, of fighting fire with fire, but the kingdom of God, of dying to self in order to live for others. If our hope is in Christ, the eternal hope of Jesus, who conquers a world of fear and violence, not by inflicting more of the same, but by absorbing all of it, every last ounce of evil and sin, if we follow the eternal hope of Jesus that refuses to demand his freedom from sacrifice, but instead offers himself willingly and fully and sacrificially in service for all humanity, if this is the world we see, if this is the kingdom we bow down to, if this is the Jesus in whom we hope and follow, then let's start recognizing where the Spirit of Christ is on the move so that we can move with the Spirit of Jesus. Let's follow Jesus by acting out of the gracious power of a higher love, a love that continues to sacrifice even when it's scorned, a love that persists in serving even when it's rejected, a love that embodies hope even in the face of death, a love that conquers all in Christ. Amen. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.